Greetings, friends, and once again, Merry Christmas. Welcome to uh, another special Christmas edition of the Bible and Life podcast. And uh, I want to extend to you and your family uh, just the warmest Christmas greetings. So, hope you have a great Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and yours. You know, this year has been just a year full of change for me and my family. All sorts of crazy changes from uh, job changes to starting some online Bible teaching resources and online Bible teaching classes, as well as this podcast, to uh, the birth of my first grandchild uh, just a little over a month ago. And man, just so many big changes this year. And and, uh, as we know, change can be hard, change can be exciting, change can be challenging. It's just been really kind of a challenging, up and down, good, and yet challenging year for me and my family. And as we enter into the Christmas season, there's change there as well. And and sometimes Christmas is just like that, and Christmas is hard. So having been a pastor for a number of years in uh, two different churches, I I know that Christmas is sort of this mixed bag, and for some people, it's just a time that's magical and wonderful, and everything's great, and they're super excited about it. And for some people, Christmas is sort of a downer, and it's hard, and it's difficult, and family's challenging. And and so I don't know where you're at with all of that, um, but I do know this, that uh, the Christmas story itself, in fact, what we're going to look at uh, just in a few minutes from the text of Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story itself is a Christmas story not about an idealized, magical, wonderful world where everything's always perfect and clean and easy. It's really about the real world. And so Christmas, wherever you're at, is for you. And Christmas says to you, it says to me, it says to your family, it says to my family, Christmas says there can be peace on earth, there there can be joy for all found in Jesus, the Messiah, the one who entered into this world with all its good and bad mixture and mess. He entered in to bring peace on earth, goodwill towards men. He came to bring joy to all as he reconciled us and this world to our Father and puts everything back to proper working order. So, wherever you're at this Christmas season, and whatever uh, emotions you're going through, good, bad, or otherwise, may you find joy, not so much in the experience of Christmas, though that's wonderful as it is, may you find joy and grace and peace in the good news of Jesus the Messiah. And so, Merry Christmas. I hope you have a blessed holiday full of grace, uh, if for no other reason than because Jesus is King and Jesus reigns, and Jesus is making all things new. So, Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to yours. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas holiday. Today on this episode of the Bible in Life, what I want to do is I want to just really, I want to look at Luke chapter 2, the most well-known and most complete Christmas nativity story in the New Testament. And I I sort of for fun, but also for really helping us think through how to study the Bible and and what Christmas is really all about. I want to look at Luke 2 and compare it to sort of our traditional, almost sentimental view of Christmas. Um, and probably the easiest way to do that is to to think about every Christmas play everywhere that children put on in churches all around 
uh, our country, all around the world this time of year, right? You have kids gathering for Christmas plays. They put on their little Christmas program at church and they're dressed up in their little bathrobes or their little robes of some sort. And you've got uh, angels with wings and you've got wise men and you've got shepherds with staves and you've got little uh, sheep and you've got a little Mary and a Joseph in a manger. And every Christmas, every children's Christmas play everywhere usually goes the same way, at least in kind of an American, Western, European kind of context. And it goes like this. Mary and Joseph, because of this decree that was sent out from Caesar Augustus, Mary and Joseph have to travel from Bethlehem uh, down, or from Nazareth down to Bethlehem uh, in order to be counted as part of the census. And usually that means in the children's Christmas play, Mary and Joseph, they travel to Bethlehem all alone. Um, Joseph usually walking. How does Mary get there? Well, Mary's riding a, she's riding a donkey usually in these plays. And so there goes uh, Mary and Joseph on their way to Bethlehem. Mary's on a donkey. Um, it seems like whenever they they arrive in Bethlehem, it's almost always night. So they arrive in Bethlehem at night and they're knocking on the door of the inn and there's a cranky innkeeper, right? I mean, he's not even a nice hospitable innkeeper. He's a cranky innkeeper and he slams the door in her face. Sorry, no room. Um, and there's no, no room in the inn, uh, no vacancy there. And so uh, maybe they knock again. He says, I told you, no room. And there, But there is a barn. There is a cave. There is a stable. Go there or something like that. And somehow Mary and Joseph end up in a barn or a cave, a stable of some sort. And Mary and Joseph um, uh, are there. And Mary goes into labor and she gives birth to her firstborn son. And they wrap him in swaddling cloths and they put him in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Um, and all that happens that very first night when they arrive in Bethlehem. That's, that's kind of the story, right? In fact, if our children did a Christmas play and it didn't have those elements, it would raise some eyebrows. We would be curious. We'd wonder, well, wait a second. That's not how the story goes because that's the story as we know it. That story is actually embodied even in our our nativity sets. We have uh, in our nativity sets uh, a little Mary, a little Joseph, a little tiny baby Jesus, and we have shepherds and sheep and cows, and we have uh, maybe some wise men even in that, and they're in this barn where all of that takes place. And when we see the nativity set, what comes to mind is the details of the story as I just told it, and it's replayed uh, countless times every year in churches all around. Um, the place all around the country with with Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus that way. That's the story as we know it. All right, now, think about Luke chapter 2. When you read through the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, it, there's a lot of things we've added that aren't actually in there. There's maybe some things we've misunderstood uh, because of translation issues or culture issues. Um and I just want to take a look at a handful of those to help us understand, really, here's what's probably really going on in the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. So Luke chapter 2 reads like this. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Um, Caesar Augustus is the emperor of the Roman uh, world. 
He Caesar Augustus is his title. Caesar meaning emperor, ruler, right? Augustus is most high, elevated one. Um, and so he is the, the emperor. He is um, really in this text by issuing this decree uh, and this process in his administration of uh, taking a census on a regular basis and counting all the people. It was a taxation census so that he could know how much taxes and what to expect, and he could line his coffers. And so uh, Augustus issues this administrative decree that a census should be taken of all the Roman world. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. And so Mary and Joseph leave Nazareth and head back to Bethlehem, presumably because Joseph, at the very least, has family and family land there. It may be that Joseph himself has been living there and is only in Nazareth for a short time. A short while or for a specific reason, but really he still has family connections and family land in Bethlehem. That's the reason he has to go back, all right? And so um, Mary and Joseph are heading back to Bethlehem. Now, just a couple cultural assumptions that, that we should be clear. Highly unlikely that they travel alone. Trips like this were usually taken sort of as part of a an entourage, a group of people, right? There was a whole party of people that would be traveling. So it's highly likely that, uh, I mean, that would be the cultural assumption. When someone in their day read this, they would just assume there was a group of people that, for whatever reason, were heading that way, some maybe for the census, some maybe for other reasons, heading to uh, Jerusalem or something like that. And so they would kind of travel together for safety, for communal protection, for collaborating and working together. So probably traveling in a group, don't know for sure. Um, Notice what's also not mentioned when they take this trip. It says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. So Mary's pregnant. They're making this trip. Notice there's no mention of a donkey. We've supplied the donkey. We've inferred him into the text, but there is no donkey. And can you imagine, actually, that if you're in, you say, your third trimester of pregnancy, riding on a donkey for for 90 miles, probably not going to happen. So probably not the best assumption on our part. Uh, My daughter is pregnant. She's at 31 weeks. Uh, I don't think she wants to ride a donkey for 90 miles, all right? Uh, Just not going to be a real pleasant experience. More than likely, if Mary rode in anything, she rode in some sort of cart pulled by a donkey, perhaps pulled by an ox, but uh, she may have walked a little bit per day. We don't know, but there's no donkey mentioned. So that's an assumption and probably not a good one either. One of the other assumptions in every children's Christmas play everywhere is that um, they arrive in Bethlehem at night and Mary goes into labor that very night. But again, listen to what the text says. Verse six of chapter two, it says this, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Well, that changes the picture. They go to Bethlehem. They're staying there for however long, an extended period of time. And while they're there, um, Mary goes into labor. So 
one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, a month, two months after they arrive in Bethlehem, while they're there, uh, she goes into labor. Well, that raises a whole nother question. If they're there that long, they can't be sleeping in a barn for, maybe they could for two or three days, maybe a week, but if it's longer than that, probably not sleeping in a barn. So let's figure out what's going on with that. So while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. Manger just means a feeding trough, right? So in a manger, a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. That's the traditional rendering. Here's the problem. The word translated in isn't the the normal word for an inn. It's a different word. In fact, uh, it's a word that more often means like a guest room or a spare room. In fact, Luke uses it a little bit later in his gospel for the upper room in which the disciples and Jesus celebrated the Last Supper. Um, When Luke wants to refer to a hotel, an actual public inn, he uses a very different word, for example, in Luke chapter 10 in the story of the Good Samaritan. So this word refers more often than not to a guest room attached to a house. Now remember, Joseph and Mary are traveling here to Bethlehem because Joseph has family or family land or family connection. Maybe Joseph has only been out of Bethlehem for a short time. We don't know, but he's going to Bethlehem because of his family connection there. That's the reason. And so uh, they arrive in Bethlehem and they've got family. And in that culture, uh, hospitality is a high value. And so to uh, to come to town and not be welcomed by your family, it's just highly unlikely it's gonna not going to happen, right? So uh, when it says in, actually what we're probably referring to is the spare room, the upper room, the guest room in the family home in Bethlehem. And Mary and Joseph arrive, and because of this census perhaps, other family members are in town for... Uh, for the census. And and so now things are crowded and other people are staying in that room. So Mary and Joseph, there's just not room for them there. Uh, Or maybe it was so crowded, it wasn't the appropriate place to give birth. And so they created a place to give birth elsewhere. Uh, But that's probably what's going on. In fact, most of these homes in this this, uh, time and place in the world, you would have like sort of a a lower level that was like a dirt floor where you would have the feeding troughs for the animals and the animals would be brought into that kind of almost sort of like a entry room uh, and the animals would be brought in there for the night. And then up above, up, up a small little ladder or some such thing, you would have kind of an upper area, an upper room where most of the family activities, cooking, sleeping, and all that would take place. Perhaps there there was in this house an extra spare little room and you have some people staying there. And what probably is going on then is that uh, Mary uh, gives birth to the baby Jesus in that lower level uh, where the animals normally stayed at night. They kicked the animals out and they gave birth to Jesus right there in the family home in that lower level. And then they laid him 
in the feeding trough. And, and that changes the picture. Mary's not alone. In fact, in their day and age, the women would help the younger women give birth. The other women give birth. And so she's probably surrounded by other women from uh, the, the family. And they help bring this baby into the world. And then they lay uh, the baby Jesus in the hay, in a feeding trough, inside the family home, because there just wasn't room for them in the guest room to give birth. That wasn't going to be the place it was going to happen. Uh, And so all of this probably takes place in the context of family and in a family home. Now, that changes the picture significantly of this whole thing. And so, does it really make a difference? Does it really matter, right? Well, at some level, maybe not. That's just details. Maybe it's not critical. Uh, But at another level, I think it's terribly important for us to make sure we work hard to hear the text rightly, whether it's this text or any text, that we make make the effort to hear the text in their terms, in their culture, rather than imposing our cultural assumptions and our cultural bias upon it. Uh, That's incredibly dangerous. In fact, what I think is a really almost humorous example of imposing our own cultural assumptions and bias on the nativity story happened in a movie that came out a handful of years ago just called the nativity fun little family christmas movie we took our kids to see it and yet uh, it was loaded with all sorts of kind of western cultural assumptions and one in particular really just stood out to me uh, when Mary is arranged to be married to Joseph in that movie. She goes out, sits down uh, by a tree or by a well, don't remember exactly where, but she sits down by herself and she sort of sulks and pouts and is sad because she's arranged to be married to a man that she hardly knows. That is a cultural assumption that we have imposed upon the, the text. Mary wouldn't have been sad. Joseph is respected. He's got a he, he's a respected carpenter. He's got a reputation for being righteous. And this marriage has been arranged. And she would be glad to be ha- uh, have her families have agreed to marrying her to such an upstanding, righteous, well-respected man. Not sad, but we've imposed our cultural assumption on it. And I just think it's terribly important, whether it's this text or any text, that when we're reading scripture, we learned to not impose our cultural bias and assumption, but we hear the text rightly. Not only that, I think making sure we get the nativity story right is important uh, because Christmas fiction can lead to a sentimental relationship to Jesus and not a life-changing one. So many people, they get the good feelings and all the good vibes and all that wonderful stuff around the Christmas time and and the magic of the season and the sentimental picture of Jesus and all that, but it doesn't lead to year-long discipleship to him. It doesn't lead to uh, this little baby growing up to be the the Messiah and the leader and the Lord of their life, right? so much of our Christmas stuff is sentimental. Think of the song Away in a Manger. No crying he makes. He's a baby, a real baby, born into the real world. He's going to cry and he's going to mess his whatever kind of diapers they had. It's a it's the real world. Or even silent night, holy night. Birth being silent 
Without epidurals? Probably not, right? Like, it's the real world, and he was born into a real world, into the midst of a family home um, that was crowded, and people were there for real-world reasons. They're there because of a tax census imposed upon them by a, a foreign ruling country. That's why they're there. And it, and it wasn't just a silent night. In some regards, it, it was almost more of a violent night, right? They're there because of Roman imperial power and, and that being imposed upon them. And for the Jews, that was always inflammatory. And that was always a reminder that they were still under subject, subjugation to foreign authorities. And God's purposes and God's plans in and through and for them had not finally been fulfilled. And into that world comes little baby Jesus, the Messiah, a real baby. And, and hence, Luke sets this story, the nativity story of Jesus, implicitly in contrast to Augustus, Caesar Augustus, Roman emperor, full of imperial power, living in wealth and uh, power and status, right? Able to issue a decree and impose his will upon a foreign people living 1,500 miles away in Judea on the outskirts of empire, Augustus. Augustus was known throughout the empire to have brought peace on earth. That was the Roman imperial propaganda, the peace of Rome, the peace of Augustus. He's brought peace to the world. He was deemed as soter, savior and ruler and Lord, right? And into that story, this Roman imperial propaganda of Caesar Augustus, into that story, Luke writes about the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the true, uh, the true king of the world, the true king of the universe, who's bringing a new empire, a new kingdom into the world. And that begins, that story that Luke's going to tell begins right here in Luke chapter 2. And this sets up the rest of the story about this subversive new king, this subversive new savior who's going to bring a different kind of peace, not a peace imposed by military might uh, and not a peace imposed by imperial subjugation, but a peace peace brought and wrought by the power of self-giving love. That's the strategy of God. That's the strategy of Jesus, the Messiah, to come in weakness and humility and vulnerability, to come into the real world among an oppressed people, to lower himself and lay down his life to bring God's kingdom into this world. That's what's going on in Luke chapter 2. And and you hear interpretations of that. You hear theological reflections of that all throughout the New Testament. For example, Philippians chapter 2 says this about the coming of Jesus, that who Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to, something to be used for his own advantage. Like Caesar used his power and his status for his own advantage, Jesus didn't. Instead, he emptied himself. He lowered himself. He poured himself out for others. And you keep reading in in Philippians chapter 2, he goes so low as to die on a Roman cross. The power of self-giving love. And in Luke chapter 2, 
That's the story we have. Not a sentimental, cute little baby who doesn't cry at his birth. We have, we have God's Messiah entering the world, the real world, um, and bringing a new kingdom into the world by a totally different strategy. The strategy of self-sacrificial, self-giving love. That's the message of Luke chapter 2. That's the message of Luke's whole gospel. And so here in Luke 2, um, we have the Christmas story of God coming into the world in the person of Jesus, uh, into the real world. And that means he can enter into your real world, wherever it's at. He doesn't, he doesn't just work in fantasy or, or sentimental or happy little worlds. He works in the real world of space and time to bring peace on earth, goodwill towards men, to bring joy, to bring light and life to everybody, right? Um, And he does that in and through the real world and even through real people. Caesar Augustus, thinking he's in charge, but God using his decree and his sovereign power to achieve his purposes. And Caesar's long since forgotten and his kingdom is long since vanished, but Jesus still is Lord, and his kingdom is still here. And his kingdom still is moving throughout this world in the hearts and lives and minds and souls of people who let Jesus be the leader and Lord of their life. And so this Christmas season, um, may you find joy in the fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us in the real world of space and time, and he can enter into your real world as well, and he can bring light and life to you and to yours uh, in this time and in this place. All right. God bless you guys. I hope you have a terrific Christmas. Uh, we'll be back with uh, to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount as we head towards the new year. Um, have a wonderful Christmas, and we'll see you next time on The Bible in Life.